0: Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to James chapter 1. And as you're turning, let me express my thanks for your prayers and encouragement as we've just added Samuel Calvin to our family. Annie is getting used to being a big sister. The other day, Sam was crying very loudly, getting changed, and Annie was in the room with, with mom and Sam, and she picked up her blanket and flipped her hair back and said, I need to take a break. <laughs> so it's different being, going from being an only child to being the eldest child. I wouldn't know. James chapter 1, we'll look at verses 1 through 4. Let us go to the Lord in prayer, asking for his blessing upon our time in his word. Our Father, we thank You that we can discover now more of the joy and the fullness of Christ's loving heart, as we have just sung, that we would know Him who loved us and gave Himself for us, that we would know the man wisdom, who is Jesus Christ Himself, that we would know His wisdom revealed in the pages of this, His Word. Would You cause this time in Your Word to be beneficial for our teaching, reproof, correction, and instruction? in righteousness. Use this portion of your word, O Lord, to make us complete, lacking in nothing, and equipped for every good work. Lord, we love you because you have first loved us, and we thank you for revealing yourself to us in the pages of this your word, and please bless it for our growth in grace, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. And now let us stand to read God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Well, tonight, Lord willing, I'd like to begin a new series on the letter of James on Sunday evenings. The letter of James has sparked much controversy throughout church history. Some early Christians doubted whether James should even be in the canon of the New Testament. Martin Luther famously said that James is an epistle of straw, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. As we'll see in this series, that is one place we have to disagree with the good doctor. In our own day, countless believers, myself included in my younger days, have struggled with the famous James chapter 2, justification by works and not by faith alone. When I was in high school, I spoke with two Mormon elders who were going door to door, and in the course of our conversation, one of them asked me, so do you believe that salvation is by faith alone? I said, yes, faith alone by grace alone. And he said, okay, turn to James chapter 2, and he read those controversial portions Faith apart from works is dead. A person is justified by works, not by faith alone. And he said, see there, salvation is not by faith alone. It's by faith plus the merit of your works. And by God's grace, I didn't fall for it at that point. I told him that James is talking about how works are the evidence of true faith, not that faith plus works saves us, even though that was not convincing to, to, to the two Mormons. And we, we will, of course, cover those things when we get to James chapter 2. But all that is to say that the book of James does not get the attention that it deserves, and that, that could be said for many of the general epi- epistles. James' view with suspicion instead of with delight. There's a sort of, let's pretend that isn't there attitude about James. So it's worth reminding ourselves when we come to any portion of God's Word, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the letter of James is God's Word. It is part of our our Christian diet. We want to be whole Bible Christians, because a whole Bible Christian is a well-rounded Christian. As we get familiar with this letter, a key question to answer is, which James? Which James are we talking about here? Here in verse 1, the author identifies himself as James, but which James from the New Testament wrote the letter? Well, almost certainly, this letter was written by James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you understand we, we, we should say half-brother of Jesus because Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, not by the natural sexual union of Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph went on to have other children after the virgin birth of Jesus, so it's good for us to keep in mind that the siblings of Jesus were really half-siblings, since Jesus did not have an earthly father like you and I do. So it is, it is this James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote this letter. And isn't it interesting that we have an entire book of the Bible written by someone who grew up in the same household as Jesus himself? This James was not a believer— early in the ministry of Jesus, John chapter 7 verse 5, John reports that not even his brothers believed in him. James was not a believer initially, and it may not have been until the resurrection of Jesus that James became a believer. After his conversion, James became a leader in the Jerusalem church. But notice what James calls himself in verse 1. He calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if you were related to Jesus if you, if you grew up in the same household as he did, wouldn't you think that'd be a pertinent fact to mention? Wouldn't you think that fact would get you a hearing from your audience? But apparently James is not so concerned about his physical relationship to Jesus. The fact that they grew up in the same home, the fact that they are half-brothers, that's not important for James. James is not flaunting his physical relationship to Jesus. He's not saying... You guys saw Jesus in his public ministry, but I've known him since he was a child. Why would he not mention being related to to Jesus? I think the answer is that James is not proud of his physical relation to Jesus. James is humbled by his saving relation to Jesus. The people who were in the same home as Jesus when he was a child and a young man, Joseph, Mary, James, and the other half-siblings, They don't have greater access to Jesus. They don't have insider information that you and I don't have. Evidently, James is humbled by who Jesus is, the only Savior of sinners. Thomas Manton, in his commentary on James, said that Mary counted a, a, a greater privilege to have Christ in her heart than in her womb. The natural relation to Jesus is not that relevant. It is the saving relation to Jesus that matters. Evidently, James is humbled, knowing that he himself is a sinner in need of the saving work of his half-brother. So another key question as we begin this series is, who is James' audience? You see there in the middle of verse 1, he makes his address to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. We saw some of this this morning from 1 Peter. Twelve tribes in the dispersion, these are Jews who became Christians and are living away from home. These believers suffered great loss. They were experiencing trials of various kinds, as we see here in verse 2. They were in exile, living away from their earthly home. People were taking advantage of them in their weakness. They were taken to court by the rich, and they were were living in unpleasant circumstances, persecution, immigration, and poverty. They may have been well-to-do in their earthly home, but in exile, in the dispersion, they lost all if not most of it. It's also important to note that these immediate problems should be put not just in their secular historical context but their redemptive historical context. Just as the Jews lived away from their earthly home, so all believers, us included, live away from our heavenly home. Even if our circumstances do not perfectly match up with James's original audience, we do share the same basic situation with them. We are citizens of heaven living away from our heavenly home on earth. We are pilgrims and strangers, as we saw this morning. This is not our home. This age is not our home. This place is not our home. We are pilgriming through it on our way, our way to our heavenly home. Just as Israel wandered through the wilderness in their pilgrimage to Canaan, so we wander through the wilderness of this present evil age in our pilgrimage to the greater Canaan, the new heavens and the new earth. Final introductory question, what is James about? Sinclair Ferguson writes in his new commentary on James, which I commend for your devotional reading, James wants to see his Christian friends growing into well-rounded and mature Christians, believers whose faith is in good working order, who have learned to be patient and steadfast in the face of suffering and persecution, and who function well in the fellowship of the church. He is concerned that Christian disciples should be marked by a heavenly wisdom. And as you may know, James is intensely practical. There is, there is one command in James for approximately every two verses. That's, that's intensely practical. It's concise. There are many metaphors and illustrations. It reflects the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And interestingly, more than any other New Testament book, it depends the most on the, t- on the teaching of Jesus himself. Douglas Moo suggests that the central concern of James is spiritual wholeness. He says that basic to all that James says in his letter is his concern that his readers stop compromising with worldly values and behavior and give themselves wholly to the Lord. As we come to the opening of this letter, as we look at verses 2 through 4 especially, the main point Pastor James drives home is that in Christ, trials make us like Christ. In Christ, trials make us like Christ. J.C. Ryle puts it, If we know anything of growth and grace and desire to know more, let us not be surprised if we have to go through much trial and affliction in this world. I firmly believe it is the experience of nearly all the most eminent saints. Like their blessed master, they have been men of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and perfected through sufferings. It is a striking saying of our Lord, Every branch in me that bears fruit, my Father purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. It is a melancholy fact that constant temporal prosperity, as a general rule, is injurious to a believer's soul. We cannot stand it. Sicknesses and losses and crosses and anxieties and disappointments seem absolutely needful to keep us humble, watchful, and spiritual-minded. They're as needful as the pruning knife to the vine, and the refiner's furnace to the gold. They are not pleasant to flesh and blood. We do not like them and often do not see their meaning. Hebrews twelve eleven. No chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. We shall find that all worked for our good when we reach heaven. Let these thoughts abide in our minds if we love growth and grace. When days of darkness come upon us, let us not count it a strange thing. Rather, let us remember that lessons are learned on such days, which would never have been learned in sunshine. Let us say to ourselves, this also is for my profit, that I may be a partaker of God's holiness. It is sent in love. I am in God's best school. Correction is instruction. This is meant to make me grow. And if you take nothing else away from this sermon, take this away, that in trials, this is meant to make me grow. Here in two sentences from verses 2 through 4, James gives us counsel for how to live in the bitter providence of trials. Two sentences that would take us an eternity to unpack and reflect upon. And the first thing that James brings to our attention is our attitude in trials. Our attitude in trials. And he puts it that way in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Remember, James is writing to Jews who became Christians and are, are living in the dispersion. These are Jews who lived outside their homeland of Palestine. These Jewish Christians have been dispersed. That's what dispersion means as a result of persecution. And you, you, you notice, obviously, that James launches right into command, into imperative. Not, I'm sorry for your circumstances, not, I'm, I'm sorry to hear of these, of these things true of you, but do this. Do this command. Well, notice what James is not saying. James is not saying, count various trials as joy. He's not saying that the pain of trials isn't painful. It's, it's rather enjoyable. He's not saying that pain is not painful. He's not saying, count it all joy when you meet some trials, as if there were trials that would justify our complaining and our grumbling, Thomas Watson says somewhere that grumbling is the devil's music. The command has to do not with the changing the hard circumstances, but with the attitude of the heart. Count it all joy. That could be translated, consider it pure joy. A quality of pure joy, complete and unallied joy. This is the attitude that Pastor James is calling believers to when we experience all sorts Not just some, but all sorts of trials, and we'll see why in a moment. But think about how countercultural James is in calling us to this heart attitude. Today, we we fall into one of two extremes when thinking of facing difficulty. One extreme, the one extreme says, become mentally tough. Steal yourself so that nothing can hurt you. Empty yourself of all feelings so that you can never feel pain. Steal yourself, be mentally tough. And on the other extreme, that says, it's okay to be defeated. It's okay to, to wallow in your pain. Nobody could possibly understand the pain you're going through. Your pain is the worst pain ever to be experienced in the history of pain. Well, James shuns both those extremes. He's not suggesting we pretend that everything is fine. He's not suggesting we should never be saddened by living in a fallen world. He's saying what he's saying. He's saying that God is at work in these trials, and that is cause to rejoice. Thomas Manton says that a Christian is a bird that can sing in winter as well as in spring. Think of Job's reaction to his trial after he lost his family and his livestock, when Satan thought that he could convince God to get Job to recant his faith in him, thinking that Job only loves you, God, because you give him stuff. Take the stuff away. And see that he will recant. But Job did not react that way. Job's reaction was a model for all believers. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Not the Lord gave and Satan has taken away. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And There can be a real attitude of joy in the midst of trial. Again, this takes place... In the midst of various trials, all kinds of trials, James's original readers were no strangers to poverty, to sickness, to loneliness, bereavement, disappointment. All of us are not strangers to these things as well. The majority of James's readers were poor. They were undergoing religious persecution. But in all of these things, in all the variety of the trials we experience as believers, For all that variety, there is one heart attitude that he is driving home, that he singles out, counting them all joy. So that's the heart attitude. That leads us to the next point. Secondly, the goal of trials. There is a goal to our trials. This is in verses 3 and 4. Notice in these verses there there is a near goal, a proximate goal, and a distant goal, an ultimate goal. The near goal is there in verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. James here further unpacks what a trial is. It is a testing of your faith. One commentator says it well that the difficulties of life are intended by God to refine our faith, heating it in the crucible of suffering, so that impurities might be refined away, and so that it might become pure and valuable before the Lord. So the testing of faith here it then is not intended to determine whether a person has faith or not. It is intended to purify faith that already exists. So very important to keep that in mind. The testing of your faith is not to see if you're a Christian. The testing of your faith is to make you a more mature Christian. That is why Trials exists. That is one goal of trials. And notice in verse 3 what the testing of your faith produces: steadfastness or patience. Wilhelmus of Brockel, that Dutch pastor and theologian um, during the era of the Puritans, he defines patience this way. That this same word that that James uses here in verse verse 3. That patience or steadfastness is the believer's spiritual strength, which he has in God whereby he, in the performance of his duty, willingly, with composure, joyfully, and steadfastly, endures all the fluctuation of life, having a hope that the outcome will be well. That is why trials should be considered all joy by the believer. Not that the trial itself is joyful or that it's pleasant, it's painful. But not here in the hereafter, All will be well. The outcome will be well. So in God's hands, that's what trials do for us, making us more like the Lord Jesus. The word James uses here in verse 3 translated steadfastness, that word has the picture of a person successfully carrying a heavy load for a long time, for the long haul. And that's not something that can be done overnight. It's like developing a muscle, making it strong with time, making it strong enough to bear that heavy weight. I think about how my mother-in-law told me once when she was younger that she trained for a marathon, because people run 26.2 miles at one time for some reason. She was training for a marathon, and I don't know how long it takes, weeks and weeks at least, and there was a woman who entered the marathon, maybe without having trained at all, but certainly with very little training. And in the course of the marathon, this woman lost her big toenail because she did not train. Her body was not prepared for the endurance for the long haul of 26.2 miles. My mother-in-law, on the other hand, had trained for it, had prepared for it, and her body was fine. As fine as your body can be running 26.2 miles. <laughs> but you see the point. You can't just jump into, into trial and expect to be fine. You have to be trained for it. And, Really what James is saying here is that the trial itself is training you, training you for something else, and we'll get to that in a moment. That is one way God uses trials in the life of the believer, causing us to grow in steadfastness and patience. Charles Spurgeon says that the established Christian says, I'm to have my worst things first and my best things afterwards. And so I sit me down at Jesus' feet and tarry his his leisure. Worst things are first for the believer, but the best things, such things that overshadow these current worst things, those are for later. And it's these worst things now that prepare us for those best things afterwards. That is the eschatology of our trials, pointing us always forward to the consummation, preparing us for it like nothing else can. So that's the near goal, the immediate goal of of trials is they make us steadfast. But there's also the distant goal or or, or the ultimate goal of trials there in verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So as valuable as steadfastness is, as patience is, the greater goal of trials is that we would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I think many of us focus on the wrong thing here. Oh, perfect and complete. How could, everyone, how could anyone be perfect or complete in, in, in this life? How could we ever attain such a thing? But See, that's, that's not really the point. If perfection and completion are the ultimate goal, what does that mean for us now? That you're imperfect and incomplete. You Just think of it in terms of, of birth. That a believer is born again. And that's great. That, that's, that's better than not being born again. But you're not born again ready made for glory. You have, to be, you have to be grown. You have to be matured. You have to grow in grace. A baby is not an adult. A baby has to grow and become an adult. So in a similar way, James is talking about how trials make us go from imperfect to perfect, from incomplete to complete. We are not yet what we should be. Praise God, we are not as we once were, but we are not yet what we should be. And in God's amazing providence, he uses trials to make us what we should be, bearing the likeness of Jesus as much as a creature possibly can. Douglas Moo again comments that nothing less than complete moral integrity will, will ultimately satisfy the God who is, who is himself holy and righteous, completely set apart from sin. So this is how God uses trials to grow us in grace, to make us like the Lord Jesus. And we could ask, Couldn't God have used something other than trials to make me holy? Well, maybe. God is omnipotent after all. It's possible that he could have. But think about what it means to be a Christian. Most basically, it means to be in Christ. Christ himself did not grow, did not advance in his work as the Messiah apart from suffering. He had to be tempted by the devil in the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights, to Earn that righteousness with which we would be clothed by faith union with Him. Well, our trials don't have that same function. We don't don't earn our salvation through our trials, but in union with Christ, we experience the same kind of trials that He experienced, not for our salvation, but to become more and more like Him. Listen also to the words of, of John Lilly in another connection It is enough for us to know that such is the will of God, that this fiery trial, happens not without his knowledge and consent and purpose and control, that he sits by the mouth of the furnace into which his people are cast, and that both the fervor and the duration of the process are regulated by his infinite fatherly wisdom and love. Did you catch that? That when you are in trials, it is as if God is saying to you, I know how hot to make the fire. I won't make it hotter than I have to. I know how long to keep you in it, and I do it to make you holy. As the author of Hebrews says, strive for that holiness without which no one will see the the Lord. And it is in trials that God makes us holy as he is holy. So don't misunderstand. Simply knowing these things, knowing what James says, that God uses our trials to make us mature in Christ, doesn't mean that trials won't be painful. Suffering hurts. Pain is painful. James says nothing about the pain being removed. Going through the fire hurts. But knowing these things, that our trials have God-intended purpose and have God-intended goal, makes trials worth it. And for that reason, we can count it all joy. One more passage of scripture. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and look at verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs of God, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Can we just do the glorified with him part? No, no. Provided that we suffer with him. You are, you are an heir of God and a fellow heir with Jesus Christ. But you must suffer first. Notice, not suffer by yourself. Suffer with him. With who? With Jesus. Provided you suffer with Jesus, in order that you may also be glorified with Jesus. So suffering is necessary, but it terminates in glory. I need to read you John Murray's quotes uh, or comments on this passage so helpful for what we see in, in James 1 as, as a, as a complementary passage. Murray says, There is no sharing in Christ's glory unless there is sharing in his sufferings. Sufferings and then glory was the order appointed for Christ himself. It could not have been otherwise. The same order applies to those who are heirs with him. Believers do not contribute to the accomplishment of their redemption. Nowhere are their sufferings represented as having such virtue. The Lord laid his people's iniquities upon Christ alone, and in him alone did God reconcile the world to himself. Christ alone redeemed us by his blood. Nevertheless, this is the key to take away, believers are regarded as filling up the total quota of sufferings requisite to the consummation of redemption and the glorification of the whole body of Christ. Did you catch that? you are filling up the total quota of sufferings requisite to be prepared for glory. Without suffering, you're not prepared for glory. Suffering is the means to glory, just as it was for Jesus, so it is for those who are in Jesus. You don't earn your salvation by suffering. Trials don't make you meritorious, but trials prepare you to be with Christ in glory. Trials remove your dross and purify your gold. God has ordained a set number of trials in the life of each believer so that we will be prepared for glory when Christ returns. As the hymn says, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. A couple of points of application as we close first thing to see is that we need to see our trials differently. We need to see our trials differently. That is to say, we need to see our trials in Christ. Herman Ritterboss says that for believers, their share in the suffering and death of this world gets to have a different meaning. That's something we'll see all throughout James. James is exhorting those who trust in the Lord Jesus. So in a certain sense, James is not talking to you unless you trust in the Lord Jesus. And as we talk about this connection with trials, with sufferings, if you are not in the Lord Jesus, if you do not trust in him for your salvation, your trials and suffering are meaningless. They do not prepare you for glory. They prepare you for condemnation, greater condemnation than you already have right now because you are already under God's wrath. Trials do not prepare you for glory. They prepare you for further wrath. But in Christ, it's radically different. God uses the trials of the believer to make the believer like Christ and to prepare the believer to be with Christ in glory. See your trials radically differently. And secondly, consider the joy set before you. Think of how the author of the Hebrews puts it in chapter 12, that Christ endured the bitter death of the cross, the shame of the cross, Why? For the joy set before him. So Christ endured his cross for the joy set before him. You, in union with Christ, can endure your cross for for the joy set before you. you. Can you see how the life of Jesus is copied in the life of the believer? Do you know the words of the hymn, More Love to Thee, O Christ?, I think summarizing very well what what the Bible says about the use of suffering, the use of trials in the life of the believer. Let sorrow do its work. Send grief and pain. Sweet are thy messengers, sweet their refrain. When they can sing with me, more love, O Christ, to thee, more love to thee. The Puritans speak often about how the believer is to kiss the rod in the hands of God. Why kiss the rod? The the rod is hard. It is difficult. It it hurts me. I can kiss the rod because it is in the hand of an all-wise God who uses it well, and he's using it to make me more like his son so that I can be with his son in glory. In closing, listen again to the words of, of Ryle. Persevere and press on. I dare say you often feel your heart faint and are sorely tempted to give up in despair. Your enemies seem so many your besetting sins so strong, your friends so few, the way so steep and narrow, you hardly know what to do. But still I say, persevere and press on. The time is very short. A few more years of watching and praying, a few more tossings on the sea of this world, a few more deaths and changes, a few more winters and summers, and all will be over. We shall have fought our last battle and shall need to fight no more. The presence and company of Christ We'll make amends for all we suffer here below. When we see as we have been seen and look back on the journey of life, we shall wonder at our own faintness of heart. We shall marvel that we made so much of our cross and thought so little of our crown. We shall marvel that in counting the cost, we could ever doubt on which side the balance of profit lay. Let us take courage. We are not far from home. It may cost much to be a true Christian and a consistent holy man, but it pays.